Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter, and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer, and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hello. Um, I'm feeling a bit secretive as I record this because... I'm walking home from dropping the kids at school. And basically, I don't really want people to think I'm being a bit of a wally recording something on my own. So I'm trying to look as if I'm just having a phone call rather than talking to, I suppose, essentially, for the time being, myself. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm putting that off, really. It's, what time is it? Mm, 9.04 and uh, it's actually not that cold today which is good and it's one of those mornings where the light is still really sleepy time grey which always to me makes it look like the day hasn't quite woken up yet which is a bit annoying wake up day come on get a move on I'm up you have to be up but anyway um, it's not very cold that's a bonus so I can do this without gloves Woohoo! and so we've had some nice news this week that we've been able to share which is that last year Richard and I we put together a cookbook now that is something I tried to instigate about five years ago because we've always loved food and cooking and so I approached a few publishers back in 2017 saying hey got an idea here can we do a cookbook and they said no so serendipity being the best friend an idea can have um it took until last year and 
a publishing house called Octopus for approaching us. Oh, it's a bit noisy here. Oh, Richard will kill me. She's next to a road. Don't worry, I'll get quiet again in a minute. Anyway, yeah, Octopus approaching us. And they just got right on board with the way that we'd always seen it happening. So the book is really exciting. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what people think of it. We poured a lot of ourselves in there. It's not just our recipes. It's like my sister's recipes and my brother's got a cocktail in there. And my mum's got something. And Nanny Claire, who was our nanny for 11 years, has got something. Loads of people, basically. It's the way we live and the way we eat. And it's been a lovely thing to put together. So that news has been able to be shared now, which is lovely. And what else is going on? My three-year-old is obsessed with Wizard of Oz. So it's usually like a daily game where we're all characters in Wizard of Oz. And I've realised I have two recurring characters I'm assigned by Mickey. One is the Tin Man, one is the Witch. So I've realised, by the way, he's always Dorothy. So I'm trying not to read too much into the fact that he gives me the characters of someone who doesn't have a heart and then someone who's evil and tries to kill him. Apart from that, it's all good. Anyway, you're thinking, what about this week's podcast, woman? Enough about your cookbook and your yellow brick road. I want to hear about the podcast guests, and rightly so. So I had the pleasure of meeting and talking to Hannah Graff. And now I was really excited about meeting Hannah because, as you know, and you're probably, you know, well aware with all the guests I've been having, I am very keen to... Uh, paint a picture of sort of modern motherhood really and the vast spectrum I mean I'm not going to be able to finish the painting because it's evolving and you know I can't everybody's got their own tale but uh, it was really something I felt close to my heart that I loved the idea of having a trans mother just because they're in the minority and in the press there's been a horrible uh, trans debate that's gone on. And I say horrible, not because of the necessity of having a debate, I totally understand that, but because of the vitriol that gets sloshed around against what I see as a very vulnerable group of people. I'm not saying they're not strong, but they are more likely, if you're a trans person, you're much more likely to be the victim of crime, so, and, you know, be assaulted, be abused, um, and actually, uh, maybe not make it to the end of your life as a result of that abuse. So, you know, a vulnerable group in that regard. So, Hannah was just awesome. I felt a little bit of butterflies in my tummy before she arrived because I thought I want to make sure I ask the right questions so that Hannah can put everything out exactly as she feels comfortable. And I needn't have worried because she's natural speaker very brilliant at putting things across as you're going to hear so as is customary at this point i'm going to shut up why do you need me to tell you everything that's in the chat well i suppose you don't and i'm not trying to do that i just want you to know that it mattered to me and that hannah was brilliant and she and her husband jake who is also trans have a little girl called millie who is about to turn two and I can confirm from pictures I've seen on Instagram, she's very cute. And I think that's all you really need to know because Hannah will tell you the rest. Um, was in the army, now works in finance. 
and yeah we had a great conversation so over to us if that's not too weird a thing to say Well, firstly, thank you so much for coming over. And this is actually quite unusual because we're speaking on a Sunday. And uh, it actually feels quite nice. I sort of woke up this morning with a bit of a spring in my step knowing I was going to get some quiet time to chat. <laughs> so thank you. I don't, that doesn't often happen at the weekend. Um, and how is everything? So your little girl is nearly two. And yeah, she's 21 months. So she is growing ever kind of more willful and like her character's really coming through which is both this utter joy of seeing this little girl just come to life but also like wow you're a lot harder to manage nowadays definitely it's, yeah it's wonderful it's really wonderful and they're busy at that age as well they're like what's beyond that door where can we go for this and they start remembering things and wanting to do stuff and yeah, yeah well i'm in trouble because i accidentally took the, brought the pram with me here so my husband was about to take her to the park and now he's got to entertain her inside uh, uh, which may be a bit tricky but i'm sure i'll manage yeah yeah they'll find a way <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna imagine them happily happily playing um but yeah i think um people talk a bit about kids sort of coming into their own and their character coming out but actually i think what happens as well is that and i really noticed this with my first is that your character as a parent starts to come out because when they're small everything that they need is quite straightforward you know right temperature food right amount of sleep these but these things could be provided by lots of caregivers but when they get older you can really choose actually i want to this is the kind of mum i'm sort of merging into does that make sense yeah i i play a lot of games with her in the morning i usually do the early mornings and you know, she just starts talking these little sentences. There's like this little transla- translation challenge every single day when she's starting to say, and the first day she said to me, mummy, get milk. And I was like, <laughs> wow, um, I probably should say you need to be a bit more polite, but it was just amazing. I was like, okay, I'll get the milk, I'll get the milk. Um, so yeah, it's nice. I, tr- I tried to be relaxed as, as relaxed with her as possible. I think Jake and I both want to have this kind of cool, calm kind of household, but inevitably something happens and everything blows up. But, you know, you try your best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, I'm divided on that. Part of me wishes you a very calm house, but seeing as I'm so unable to sustain that in my own home, I'm kind of hoping for more of the the chaos. (laughs) It ends up being quite fun, really, all of that stuff. But um, I was saying to you earlier before we started recording that I just re-watched your documentary this week all about how you and Jake came to be parents. And... um, in it, there were some times where you expressed some anxieties about your journey into motherhood. But if you could go back in time, would you think there were things that you were worrying about that ended up not being things you needed to worry about? I mean, absolutely, yes. I mean, the root of my anxiety was mainly that I'm a transgender woman. Um, and so much is made um, about mothers around the hormones, the pregnancy, the bonding, you know, the innate motherhood. And I just assumed that all through that process that I would be lacking all those things and therefore I had a lot to worry about so I really worried about will I bond with my child will I be a natural mother will I be able to do all the things that other women do with their children and you know and that's what really drove me through the documentary to want to be as much involved as possible so when we couldn't be there at the birth because of you know the COVID pandemic I felt at the time that was a really big deal because I thought I'm missing a moment to bond with my child when they first out into the universe and and so I thought I was really missing something fast forward just literally a few days and you know Jake's catching some well-needed sleep I've got you know a newborn baby on my lap and I'm feeding her it's about three o'clock in the morning and I realized that 
you know, I'm everything to that child at that moment. You know, without me, that child is, you know, cannot survive. And I also knew that I would do anything for her, you know, in that moment to make sure that she was okay. And I thought, that's what being a mother is. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's experience of motherhood is very different. And that one for me was realizing that I didn't have to be in inverted commas, born a woman to be a mother to my child. And so all of a sudden those anxieties, those things that I built up over months and months and months started to, you know, fizzle away. And I realized that I could just get on with being the best mother I could be. Yeah, and so much of what you just said resonates. And also I think slightly maybe makes me think a little bit about why I wanted to start this podcast in the first place, because I feel like there's certain things you spoke about just then that actually really sound like how I felt as well, because I had quite a medicalized start to motherhood in that my firstborn was born two months early. So before I'd even held him or actually really seen him, he was off in another room receiving medical care. And I felt really redundant, actually. I didn't really know what my role was Mm. in all of that. And I think, I don't know, I think it's probably pretty impossible to glide through preparing to have a baby without wondering if you're going to be able to bond with that baby anyway, even if it's a baby you've carried. And I remember when I first found out I was pregnant and I said to my mum, I keep seeing all these babies everywhere, but they're not very cute. (laughs) And she was like, that's not a great sign. But I think you sort of worry about all of that. And obviously, we've covered some of these things already with previous conversations, actually, with, with the podcast, but there's so many journeys into becoming a mother. And once you slip outside of that first, you know, the sort of typical, you know, there's so many ways, you know, you could be adoption or surrogacy and donors. There's lots of different ways to start that that whole process off. But I mean, it's very powerful. Yeah, I mean, I remember when the documentary went out and, you know, kind of looking at our social media that night and, you know, it blew up and there was huge amounts of messages. It got a lot of views at that time. I think it was just at the end of the pandemic when people were still very glued to their TVs. And so we we're very lucky to get a good audience. And I was just overwhelmed by mainly women just coming on and saying how much they related to my journey. And that was, I mean, it was very empowering for me as a transgender mm. woman to to know that I had that kind of universal connection with cis women and their experiences of becoming a mother, but also it reminded me that there is, you know, so much more to talk about and why this podcast is so brilliant because, you know, there are so many women who struggle to, you know, either bond with their children or worry about not being able to give mother because they can't carry or they can't breastfeed or they can't do something other than the the societal norm that people kind of like hold up as then the, the perfect motherhood. And so actually it was a really important thing to talk about. And I'm really, really glad that it had that reaction because it just, you know, I spent a lot of time responding to as many people as I could. And it was just lovely to know that not only were they helping me, but I could potentially help them as well. It was a really empowering thing to do. Yeah, massively. And I think actually you've really hit the nail on the head there with something I was thinking about just this morning, actually, and about how, you know, when you think of motherhood in modern Britain, it's such, there's such scope there, but we still have this quite, almost quite fetishized version of what motherhood is. And I don't, it's, it's almost an impossible thing to live up to or be part of. And I think, as you say, so many ways to feel like you're not, you're not getting it right. But actually, in that moment, when it was you and your baby Millie, and it's that calm in the middle of the night thing. You realise that there's all this sort of parent, uh, peripheral vision of parenthood, but in that moment, it's just you and that baby. And that's actually an incredibly personal thing. It's like all the other stuff melts away a little bit. It's just there's only that one baby and there's only that yeah. you that's the mum. And that's like an incredible Honestly, thing. it's beautiful. It's just that I've never... 
I, that will be my one memory for me that will always, you know, when when I think back about Millie as a newborn baby, that's the one that I remember. It's just that kind of sense of closeness in the dark of a, you know, Airbnb in Northern Ireland, um, just <laughs> just me and her. That is really beautiful. And, and I, obviously, not only are you and your husband the first transgender parents in the UK, but also you had your baby in the midst of this massive pandemic situation, the first lockdown. So you had to kind of get across to... Belfast, is it? Yeah. I mean, we'll just go back slightly because we, we are, when people say we're the first transgender parents in the UK, I don't think that's fair to say at all. I think there are lots of transgender oh, people cool. who are parents. I think we're the first transgender parents to have gone through a surrogacy process, you know, where both of us are transgender and a surrogate. So okay. um, I think... The no, me- that's really important to Yeah, the media's really that. bad sometimes at just like taking snippets of conversations and then like really making it out to be, you know, wow, big clickbait type thing. And I sometimes I, I worry that in those conversations, all those people who've gone like, hey, I'm transgender and I've been a parent for 20 years, like, you know, that their, their stories get lost a little bit. So I'm sorry to, to clarify, but I do think it's important. Hannah, it's um, really important. Actually, one of the things I was going to ask you is actually if you found, if you, well, firstly, if you had any role models in your mind before, um, you know, with your journey into, you know, being the person you are today, if, if there was someone that you could think of that was someone you saw yourself reflected in. I mean, I found it very hard to find those role models when I was growing up. You know, when I was growing up, so I grew up in the kind of you know, 90s and there just there was hardly any transgender representation anywhere at all. And whatever it was, it was really negative. So the the, the most common one I can think of, the one that most people would have seen in the UK is uh, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, you know, family film mm. that, you know, people took their kids to in the cinema and everyone laughs and jokes. In that, the antagonist is a transgender woman and... Uh, Jim Carrey, who's the lead, you know, kisses her and then finds out that she's transgender. And when he finds out that she's transgender, you know, he throws up, he burns his clothes, he goes for a shower to clean himself. And then the very end of the film, like literally the culmination of the film is him stripping this transgender woman naked to prove to the world that she's transgender, surrounded by a load of cops who all throw up. What? I haven't actually seen that movie. That is astonishing. Astonishingly shocking. Yeah, I mean, it's it's still shown on you know on you know, terrestrial TV to this day. And but the thing was that that's a God, family that's film. Actually horrific. People all it's completely horrific. Yeah, but people watch it and laugh along to it. And I grew up to all my friends and family laughing to that film. And so my kind of sense of being transgender, I learned from a very young age. Don't tell anyone because that's the reaction you're going to get. And so I really didn't have many strong transgender role models. I had role models in my life for other aspects, but as a transgender woman. There wasn't anyone. And then, you know, I joined the army and um, I, you know, I grew up knowing that this was who I was, but learning to hide it. So I, I lived mm. a very double life because I thought if you tell someone, that's the reaction you're going to get. And when I was out in the army, um, my first appointment out to uh, Afghanistan, it's a very, you know, Afghanistan is a very strange place because h- high moments of, you know, of high adrenaline, you know, but they're very short. And then, these long moments of sitting and waiting around, lots not not lots happening, but you don't have access to the internet, you don't have access to TV, and so it's kind of a lot quiet, a lot of time for introspection. And I just, in that moment, I felt very isolated and very away from my true self. And so I kind of told myself that when I came back, I would never put myself in that position again. Mm. And I went to a an army psychiatrist to talk about, you know, my identity and potentially transitioning, still terrified to do it. And he said, well, I know someone who... I've helped before, they're an RAF officer, would you like to talk to them? I said, yes, please. And it was this woman called Isla Holden. Um, she'd actually been splashed across the, the newspapers herself um, as a transgender woman in the RAF. 
And she was my role model because she was just happy, serving, living her life, had a partner, was just a happy human being. Mm. And she was so giving with her time and her advice. And I was like, wow, I can do this. And that was the impetus I needed to come and, you know, take my first step on my journey. And that first step's always the hardest. And after that, it gets, you know, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, you're kind of 10 years down the line and with a, <laughs> married with a kid. But um, yeah, <laughs> she was my role model, that's for sure. So a bit of a long-winded answer, but um, yeah, that was that was how, who I found. No, but I am always fascinated um, when people have had their own personal challenges, whatever it may be, I'm always fascinated if they've ever felt that they have seen people out there that help them because I think that's what's so powerful about um, what you've been doing is you have, because of that experience you had, you've, you've made it part of what you do to make sure that you're visible and you're vocal and so articulate, Hannah. Honestly, you're absolutely brilliant. And some of the things that you've said um, are very, very simple things, but I think that in a time where, from the outside looking in, it's been a really tricky time for trans community, and I don't know quite what's prompted it. It feels like the last couple of years, everything's got really heightened. And I think that's why it's so important to to have the conversations, because there will be people, you know, for all the, the, the happiness of finding yourself, as you say, 10 years down the line, happily married with a kid, we have to acknowledge that for a lot of trans people, they're incredibly vulnerable, and the statistics are really scary yeah absolutely and and you're not wrong i think you know if you look back about six years there was a time where the global transgender community or certainly the western world was feeling very positive we had laverne cox on the front cover of time magazine the uk was labeled as the you know the best place in europe to be you know lgbt and as a community we started to see more people come out and tell their stories and we all felt very positive and i think what is natural when you fight for any level of equality, there always becomes a bit of a pendulum swing back and people yeah. go, well, hang on a second, <laughs> you've gone too far. We don't want you to have that much stuff. And then in the UK, the catalyst was the the the, the government did a reform or proposed reform on the Gender Recognition Act, which is the piece of legislation that allows transgender people to legally change their, their gender. Mm. And um, for whatever reason, that became the catalyst for people who thought we'd come too far to really organise and come together and try and prevent us from our happiness and our future lives, despite mm. the fact that this legislation that's being proposed has been successfully implemented in many countries, such as including Ireland, for one thing, with absolutely no issues whatsoever. Um, and what really started at that point was a campaign of misinformation. And I think that's the thing that, as transgender people in this community, we really struggle with because, you know, there are some very, very simple answers to the, you know, inverted commas, issues that are being put out there. This whole idea that we are divided with the, you know, with the feminist movement. I, I can't think it'd be more further, than the, further from the truth. And actually, I think that's a very simple answer. But the problem is, is that we as a small community with very little platform to talk about it have to go up against, you know, huge, huge people with massive um, followings and against, you know, the entire of the the press, you know, and we're not yeah. just talking kind of you know your traditional right wing press. Even the left wing press, you know, quite often will spread very very damaging, um, you know, BBC included, you know, very damaging uh, stories about the transgender community. Yeah, very irresponsibly, I believe, and yeah. you know, with very very little balance, very very little understanding of the you know the impact of what they're saying, and you know, that's our challenge. That's the challenge of the transgender yeah. transgender community community today is how do we 
get across to all those people in the middle. You know, you've got the people yeah. on the left who think one thing, the people on the right, you know, but all those other people who are just observing this conversation, how do we communicate to those people that we are just human beings? Absolutely. We want to be happy, we want to live, and we want to be part of society the same as anybody else. We don't want to take anyone's rights. We don't want to impact on anyone's happiness. We just want to be us. Yeah, I know. I find it all... Uh, it makes me feel really emotional. And I don't know if it's because, um, you know, you, you can't help from... I, mean, I empathise so much. I mean, we're talking about a community that's around sort of 1% of the population, but the only time the statistics flip so dramatically is when you go to, you know, the, the susceptibility to crime, suicide, you know, where it all gets really, really big and scary. I think I was reading yesterday that... Um, someone who's trans might have considered suicide, they're up to 90% of that community would have thought about it. That's huge, yeah. you know. And um, and a lot of these people as well, you know, there's some really young people now all starting that because the conversation's so much more visible. And, you know, I think for as soon as kids reach their double figures, they're being asked lots of questions about how do you see yourself? And so much that's really positive in terms of getting, you know, gender conversation out there. I think that's always a good thing. But, you know... The vulnerability is there too. And it's like you say, that's so clever when you're saying about the, the way the conversation is. And actually, I think it goes back to something you said before about clickbait as well, because it's it's sort of juicy as a topic yeah. and and divisive. And, you know, you can get some really, um, really smart people not really knowing how they what they feel about it and how to articulate it and probably jumping straight into something. And I think I get frustrated by that when things are intellectualized and you can talk about things in a really clever eloquent way but then for a lot of those people they can walk away from that conversation and live their life live their happy life go home and do, do the other things but you haven't helped the people that really need help in living a happy life yeah so, i mean i think some people are you know generally do it out of misunderstanding i think you know i choose to believe that the world is a a more positive place than it is negative and that people yeah, are generally good and want to be nice to people. Um, but when things are framed in a certain way, then they, they get these biases built up in them and then they base, they base their conversations and their thoughts and their feelings on those biases. And I, this conversation we're having about, about transgender people, like the, the most classic example is the bathroom debate about whether transgender women like myself belong in a women's bathroom. Because And the argument goes because we're inherently dangerous and we, you know, we, we are essentially just men in dresses that want to, to, to rape women. I mean, it's, it, it's plaintively ridiculous. Um, and by the way, transgender women have been using the women's bathroom you know, for as long as anyone listening to this has been alive and, you know, <laughs> it's all been okay. Um, but this is exactly the same debate that was used against gay men, you know, yeah. in the 80s yeah. under Section 8 of Margaret Thatcher. This is the same thing of, you know, gay men, they want to come in, they want to hurt, you know, in, again, inverted commas, normal men. Mm. Um, and it's the same argument that's been used against, you know, black people, you know, in the civil rights movements, again, you know, yeah. race equality and saying that we don't want, you know, black men in the same, you know, loses the white men it's never been about bathrooms it's about power and it's about control and when people realize that that actually again transgender women we just want to pee like anyone else <laughs> yeah no absolutely right and it builds on on fear and you know people have all sorts of reasons to, to, to have, you know as you say that they're biased that might be um, ignited by things that make them feel that they might not might be more at risk so a lot of it is incredibly divisive and that I think that's one of the reasons I was so keen to have a conversation about it because I think um I totally agree with you by the way that most people are good and I I'm, I'm up there with that too but I think it's just about 
you know, making sure that these conversations are kept open because cancel culture that can happen, I don't think is a good idea either. I really feel very passionately about everybody listening to everybody. And from there, you can you can actually start to build those bridges. Yeah, a cancel culture I find is a funny one. I'm no, I don't know where I sit on it because sometimes I do think that it's a, it's a phrase that is used to kind of demonise people just saying, I'm not interested in listening to you anymore. Like, you know... It's one thing to say, you can say whatever you want, but I have no obligation to listen to you. And so if I choose not to listen to you now because, you know, I don't like what you're saying, then that also feels like part of my freedom. And I think when I, when you hear about terms like woke and cancel culture, I do just, I worry that they just become kind of these terms that people use to kind of demonise just people saying, actually, no, I've had enough of your bullshit. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's that kind of like, yeah. no, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to listen to you anymore. But I don't agree with huge pylons, abuse, and making people people feel bad for honest mistakes. As I said, I think people are good. And when people make mistakes trying to do the right thing, yeah. then I think then it's absolutely wrong to, to be rude. I mean, it's always wrong to be rude and abusive. I think there's always a polite and calm way to approach any debate. But to say, I'm no longer going to engage with your art because I find what you represent as an artist is in, in line with my personal kind of know feelings and how I want to approach the world I don't think that's cancer culture that's me just making a decision not to engage with you anymore I think yeah no that's true I suppose I think of it um, when I say it, I'm thinking of the sort of media thing of sort of going you know and in the red corner and in the blue yeah, corner yeah, and that totally. sort of when people put forward you know a nuanced um expression of how they feel and then it's kind of made into a it's, everything's immediately weaponized just to be divisive about making sure that there's conflict. Mm. It's that messy middle, like, it's yes. the bit in the middle where yeah. all the fun conversations conversation should be had. Like, that's why I, I really don't engage on Twitter anymore because yeah, it is Twitter, just oh that God, red and blue corner. <laughs> yeah. But you say in the middle, there's a load of people who just don't have the information or want to understand or want to learn and they're the people that I want to be able to try and talk to and approach and it's really hard to do that with the current setup of both the social and mainstream media. Yeah, I totally agree. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I mean, 
just to sort of also, I do understand that being a trans woman is not your job, by the way. I do get that. <laughs> I do know that. It is a little bit, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I was thinking, but you kind of brought it into your life in that way because um, of the, the charities that you work with. And yeah, because um, alongside, I mean, even in the army, you were the trans representative, is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. So I guess there is a kind of, that stands on that bit of it for talking about work and this. I, I think guess. it's definitely, part, it's part of my job, just like it's part of my life. So being a trans woman or being transgender is part of me. It was, it is informed my childhood. It's informed my adult life. You know, it is a huge part of who I am because it, you know, has determined my experiences as I've grown up. But it isn't who I am. Like, mm. I am so much more than that. Like I say, I am a mother. I am, a, you know, an army veteran. I, you know, I... I'm a and a wife. These are all things which are also part of me. So, yeah. um, and as you said, because I've been very fortunate to have a platform and a platform that so many trans people don't have, mm. I do feel a sense of responsibility and obligation to try and use that to help inform people who want to understand a little bit more about the real, true transgender experience, not what you read in the headlines. So, um, I, I don't mind doing it because I say I, I feel like I'm very lucky to have such a positive experience and have a positive life that I can talk about, but. Just, it's just not who I am in my entirety. No, of course not. I do understand that. And I think, actually, you mentioned the army. It's a, you only left the army in 2019, is that right? Yeah, yeah, 2019. And uh, what's it like when you leave something like that? Because that must be such a huge part of how your life is all the time. Yeah, it's it's difficult because, you know, there is this, the culture in the army is almost indescribable to no one who's ever been in the armed forces, I don't think. There's a sense of camaraderie and banter and kind of hard-working, get-it-done attitude that you tend not to find, you know, in civilian life, maybe outside of certain sort of sports teams, but generally speaking, I find, I find it very hard to replicate. But, you know, the army is still only a job and mm. something I think that we all need to know in our work lives is that you, you know, you work to live, not live to work. And um, I learned so much from the army. The transferable skills that I got from the army have helped me out in my personal professional life since then but what yeah, kind of thing can you tell me a bit more about that it sounds interesting well i think the um there's a real level of sort of teamwork that you have to have to be in the armed force it's like it's one thing to you know to be in a you know in an office space and need to work as a team but it's another thing to be you know lying in a puddle when you haven't slept for 48 hours and you know you've got to you know got a 10 mile run ahead of you carrying you know carrying your mate or something like that that's a real different level of teamwork that just you find an inner strength to get on because of the other people around you that really need you and that's part of the training you do in the army that you just I don't think it's hard to it's hard to generate that again outside of that um so the teamwork is definitely one I think the the ability to speak um and speak to people of seniority that's something that is very natural in the army like you as you know as a private soldier you know you can be expected at some point for a general to turn up and ask you about how your day is going and and tell him what you think about something and it is you you get used to dealing with those kind of very senior people which again when you come out of that and go to a civilian job all of a sudden like you see people struggling to talk to people who are sort of two layers above them and you think yeah they're just human beings you know they use the loo the same as anyone else so yeah. you, know, you just need to there are things like that but um yeah it's it's very very hard to describe but it's certainly i think i love for the wider public to know how many skills the army and you know, armed forces people have when they leave that they find really hard to articulate on a CV because when people get given an, op- an opportunity and a chance after they've left the armed forces, often they are really, really successful because of all their skills that they learn. 
Yeah, I mean, is it something? Do you do you miss all that then? If it's such I miss a... the people, like yeah. the people are just so. I mean, some my best friends are all the ones who are still in the in the army. Do people um, tend to stay for the duration. Does it tend to be something you do? I mean, speaking as an army officer, that's probably different from you know people who maybe join as a, an enlisted soldier as a private, for example. But there tends to be a bit of a a kind of a five to ten year period where you know you come in, people achieve what they want to achieve, and then they leave or they stay on for like the rest of their careers. There right. tends to be that kind of like... Either or, almost. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, it's only a job and sometimes your life changes. Like when I joined the army, I thought I was joining for an entire career. I thought I'd be there till, you know, you know for 22 year career. But mm. then I met Jake out of the blue and he was, you know, based in London, you know, jobs in the army at London aren't that easy to come by. We wanted to start a family and so I thought, actually my priorities have shifted and no longer yeah. do I want to have that life where I'm happy to travel the world. I mean, one thing that used to really attract me to the army was the moving jobs every two years, different location, new people, different challenges. And I'm like, actually, if I want to start a family, I might want to be a bit more stable. And there are plenty of families in the army that are quite happy to move around, but that wasn't us. And so yeah. priorities shifted and I thought, okay, time to time for the next chapter. Yeah, I'm thinking when you said about the, I know you were meaning it literally saying about lying in a puddle with the big run ahead, but <laughs> all I could think of is the best similar to how I feel when I'm doing school runs some mornings. <laughs> it's like, I have that metaphor in my head now. I picture myself like hauling these backpacks, like, come on, guys, you can do <laughs> Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I always have this recurring feeling, actually, when I'm feeling really spread thin, I was, this recurring thing like, I, what am I, gonna, I, I always picture myself just sort of suddenly like just collapsing like spread eagle in the middle of the park officer. It's <laughs> like this recurring thing. Like, I'm done. <laughs> I, mean, I think you've been well prepped to motherhood. You should have another four. I mean, definitely. By, by the way, being a mother is much harder than being on exercise in the army. Definitely. <laughs> well, yeah, you talked about you know you're still talking to someone who's in position of seniority with your small person, though, aren't you? <laughs> they, they can really give orders like no others. It's. Um, it's astonishing. Um, well, did you have an idea of what kind of mother you wanted to be then when you started thinking about being a mum? I mean, I think I just fell back on the way that I was brought up by mm. my mum and dad and what amazing parents they were. Um, you know, as soon as I said that sentence, I felt the emotion rise in me. Yeah, yeah, it's me a real, too. Uh, but, you know, I, I have wonderful parents who have stuck with me through all the ups and the downs and some really challenging moments for, for all of us and... Um, my mum's a well, was a primary school teacher. My dad was a project manager, um, but they were both very, very present. Um, I, I, you know, you hear about you know some you know slightly older you know parents who maybe it was more the mother that was present for certain times. I didn't feel that at all. My my family, my mum and dad were equally present throughout my childhood. When you say and, present, do you mean they were around or literally they were really good at really sort of checking in with you? And I mean, both. I mean, they were, you know, my, my dad actually travelled a lot for work when I was very young, would spend a few days away. I used to find that difficult. But what I meant really was more that emotionally present, yeah. which is my, they were... I always felt they were engaged in my childhood. So whatever I was doing, it was, you know, the days were planned around me and my brother. Wow, you know, and, that's lovely. You know, if I decided that I liked rugby, there'd be a rugby ball bought and you know, <laughs> it would be kicking around in the park You know, that the very next weekend. You know, my dad or my mum would constantly teach me how to make cakes or you know, yeah. you know, play leg or whatever it was I was wanting to do. Yeah. They were really there for me. And that's what I really carried forward in how I want to be with Millie, which is just be there and let her be her own self. I just want yeah. to, you know, see, I just want to see the true Millie flourish and whichever direction that goes in, I just want to be there. So if she decides that 
she wants to be a world class gymnast. You know, I'll be I'll be there at gymnastics every mm. you know every weekend. Or if she wants to swim, and I'll get up at four o'clock in the morning and take her to the swimming lessons before school. You know, or you know, if she wants to play football or rugby or be yeah. a creative like a dad, whatever it is. You know, I yeah. just want to her to be herself, and that's what I felt for my parents. That sense of just really allowing me to grow and be whoever I was, and that I think has made me who I am today. I think in a way you sort of summed up what I think is the best quality to have as a parent, actually. I think being present like that is sort of it's sort of everything, actually, because, you know, there's so many life skills, but if someone is really allowing you just to explore who you are, I mean, that's what you're doing. You're growing a person and letting them really sort of push and pull on all the sides of themselves and work it all out. So do you think when... When you did start to be more open about the challenges you're having and how you're feeling about yourself, did your mum and dad, did it just go, did that just make complete sense to them? I mean, no, actually, quite the opposite, because I, because of those really early moments of my life where I learnt that being transgender was a negative thing, I hid it, and I hid it so well, um, even to myself to a certain degree. You know, I, you know, I did a really stereotypically masculine thing, and I went and joined the army. You know. And I, I'm very sporty. I love rugby, and I go to the Millennium Stadium and cheer on Wales. Like you know, it's going out of fashion. I, I, these are very, you know, stereotypically masculine things. And so I don't think people really realised that I'd buried so much of my femininity inside. And and also that because we all think of you know these are boys' activities and girls' activities that they didn't realise that some of the things that I loved could be inherently feminine as well. You know, like yeah. being sporty isn't necessarily a masculine trait. But no, I when I told them I was transgender it was an, a complete and utter shock and you know they went through a, a sort of grieving process where they you know for their I think in their mind they grieved the son they lost even though you know I was still exactly the same person, same person yeah and but they had to go through that process to realize that and realize that you know they hadn't lost anyone at all I was just in choosing to engage in the world in a different way and yeah. present, present in a different way but it was tough there was it was really tough for them there was a lot of tears um and there was a lot of awkward, you know, family, you know, meetings and having to kind of them get used to seeing me in a way that they probably didn't want for me because it was outside of their expectations of what they wanted their child to be. Um, but through the entire process, even though it was very difficult and very challenging, I never, ever once felt like I wasn't loved or supported. You know, they constantly were on that journey with me from start to finish and they engaged with that journey from start to finish as much as it caused them pain. So, yeah, again, I... I think my parents are absolutely inspirational. I think that um, I couldn't possibly be here as a, you know, functioning transgender woman, you know, happy, productive in society and my personal life, you know, without that love and support. And I think, you know, you mentioned yeah. some of the some of the negative statistics around transgender people, and those negative statistics are in, almost entirely based on society's reactions to them both people's family, friends, yeah. and, you know, yeah. people around that they have to engage in public life. Yeah. You know, as you say, I work with um, charities that support transgender people, and I've seen the good and the bad. The the people who have their support from their families and their friends and, you know, schools, etc. they just live happy lives, and they're just happy. Yes, they have challenges, but every kid has challenges, mm. but they get on with it. The ones that have a, a parent or parents, a family member or a school that aren't supportive and, and and introduce that negativity in their lives, they're the ones that really struggle and they're the ones that, you know, feed into those negative statistics. Yeah. And I just wish, 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 wish all people in society would just realise that 
if you could just be open-minded and let people be who they naturally are, we'd all be much, much happier. Yeah, across the board, definitely. And I think, you know, as you say, if... if um, if families and friends are just open to having those conversations and being on that journey with someone, it's you all end up in the, in the right spot because that you're the person you care about in the, in the centre of it all is able to be. I think the thing I'd struggle with the most is just the idea that my child had been not liking aspects of themselves. I think that would be the only thing I'd really feel like sad for because that's a lonely feeling. And actually, I do know that you can be in the happiest of families and feel very lonely within that. So I think, you know, I think that's the only thing that I'd feel sad for and be really relieved that we were able to then move into the new chapter. But it's all powerful. I mean, it's interesting because I remember there was a, a, a comment, I can't remember if you put it on your Instagram or if it was in the documentary where you said, you know, I I am a woman, I've always been a woman, I just happened to have been born a man. And I think that's the simplicity of that really gets across a lot of what's at the core of that journey really and all the stuff you're talking about about masculine and feminine choices I don't even think that that's hugely relevant if it's just about being who you're supposed to be yeah I mean mean? yeah absolutely I mean that I when I transitioned I went through initial stage of almost like going to hyper femininity because I thought you know if I've transitioned I've now got to be the woman that society says that a woman should be and I just fell into exactly the same trap that I'd fallen into for the first 20 years of my life (laughs) but just for a woman instead of a man and it was um a while after that I thought oh hang on a second like I'm never going to be the sort of person that's going to have huge long painted nails walk around in huge high heels um Mm. you know and go for you know like little tea brunches it's just not who I am Mm. I mean the people enjoy it Great, not just <laughs> out, have a great time, but yeah. I'm very happy going, sitting in the stands of Millennium Stadium, cheering on Wales at rugby. Mm. It makes me very happy, and I thought mm-hmm. that is neither male nor feminine. That is me, and I am a woman. That's who I am, and so for me, that's feminine. It'll yeah. be someone else that'll be masculine, and you know, for someone going to a tea party, that'll be masculine too. It's just yeah. we just we we get so hooked up on the society, so hooked at, up, at, like assigning labels to stuff. Again, oh, it's no. just about individuality and just being who you are and trying to be happy. Yeah, and I think every woman, uh, cis woman or otherwise, it, everybody goes on that journey. That is exactly it, because the idea that things are one thing or the other actually is exhausting and actually completely ridiculous, if you yeah. think about it. It's completely absurd. Um, the only difference is that as a transgender woman, we tend to do it in like our later in life, but most people are doing it as teenagers, which is yeah. why we always felt, like our friends around us like looking at us going, gosh, I was like that when I was like 17 <laughs> and you were like 25. Um, yeah and, I guess also you're, yeah, and I guess also you're kind of like analysing those things in a different way um, because it's more more of a visible transition you had to make in terms of realising, you know, yourself. But really... I think you, you get really get hooked up on the physical stuff when you transition. And so does everyone else around you, so it's really hard not to. People always talk about transitions around physical training. It's like, oh, I can't believe you look like this. Oh, I'd never have told that you... I could never have told that, you know, you, you know, you were a man. All these types of things that are based around your looks and your physicality, when actually transition is much more about mm. what's inside, how you feel, how you talk, how you engage with the world, and how the world engages with you. Which is why, again, like I say, you have that real moment when you first transition, your body's changing, like, oh, it's all about the body, I'm looking great. I'm looking like this I'm obsessed with my pictures and then you think actually a couple of years down the line I go okay right I get it now it's not about how I look you know if I don't wear makeup today it's not a big issue um, actually 
people see me as a woman. My parents call me Hannah, not my old name. That's the thing that makes a difference, not whether yeah. or not, you know, your eyebrows are plucked that morning. Oh, yeah, definitely. And how you feel on yourself, like the, you know, putting one foot in front of the other when you go out and, like, just feeling, like, free, really, to be yourself, however that, however that comes. I think, you know, for, for kids, there's so much... I said to Sonny, only my, this is my 17-year-old the other day, I really wish a lot of these conversations had been around when I was growing up. I think it would have been really great to be able to just explore what what, what gender meant to me, actually. It wasn't a conversation at all, I remember. From, mm. So I'm a bit older than you, so I'm 42, but yeah, growing up in the 90s, and that was when I was a teenager, I just don't remember it being a conversation that was being had. And I think it would have been really really brilliant to be able to have those conversations and so if anyone listening is you know maybe they've got a child that they think is having you know in a dialogue about their own gender so your advice would just be just to just to keep the conversations open I suppose yeah I would just don't see it as a negative thing just see it as this is something that my child happens to be going through. Other people's children will be going through other challenges. This happens to be the challenge that you're looking at. And the main thing is just to make them feel like they're loved no matter what. And you'll be along that journey. That's the key thing. Of course, mm. there are, you know, you, you, it is, it's, it's okay to ask for help and need support in those situations because it can be scary. It's challenging. It's out of the ordinary. You don't know how to react to it. So there are multiple ways, places you can get support. Um, I'm part I am patron of a charity called Mermaids, which supports gender non-conforming in their children. They do incredible work. And one of the main things they do is they connect families with other families going through the same challenges so you don't feel like you're, you're alone. Mm. Um, and that's one of the biggest things. Like you go to, I've gone to events with the Mermaids where you see all these young gender non-conforming children all playing together. And the thing at that moment, they're just being children. No one's talking about being trans or anything like that because yeah. they... For them, they don't want to think about it. They just want to be themselves. And because they're amongst a group of children who are all going through the same thing, they can relax and just be and just play. And then you've got the parents who can get together, have a cup of tea, have a cry, you know, have a conversation. But everyone comes away from those those moments thinking, okay, I'm not alone. You know, my child is not a freak. My child is not going to, you know, turn into a different person. No one's pushing my child into this, actually they can just be who they are and I can just support them. But never feel like you have to be alone. But the main thing is just that, you know, when your child is grown up, you've got to ask yourself, what do you want them to tell, say about you? Do you want them to say that you were the parents that tried to deny what they were saying, who didn't trust them, who didn't listen to them, who weren't there for them, and they had to struggle against to be wherever they end up? Or do you want to be like me and say, my parents were honest with me when they said they found it difficult. They had tears, but they always made me feel like I was loved, I was cared, and they'd be with me on that journey. And any for me, any parent facing that question, I think it should be a really simple choice. Yeah, I think it is, actually. I think, yeah, that's beautifully put. And, I mean, is, is there anything that... This might be a really big question, actually, but <laughs> is there anything in that would ha really help in the here and now in terms of the trans community that you can see that would just be something that would really help get make things in a more positive place for the here and now? I mean, if I've got a magic bullet, mm. you know... Yeah, let's imagine would... that. I'm giving you a magic bullet. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the first one, I might just fire it at Twitter and just delete Twitter. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> that, um, I think that would help a lot of people, actually. But... You're good aim. I'm giving you another bullet. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> I think I'd love to see, 
I'd love to see some people held accountable for their journalism. Um, um, I've actually been in a room where I've seen people be given awards for their journalism that really spreads misinformation against transgender people. And I find that really difficult, um, you know, because, you know, apparently it's this challenging conversation and people are opening up the conversation, but all they're really doing is spreading misinformation and lies. Mm. And if we could start to hold people account for, you know, their actions, you know, we do it in so many other places, you know, it's yeah. in so many other, you know, again, inverted commas, debates, you know, we people say what you've said has had a, a damaging impact on a community or on a person, therefore mm. we hold them account. But for some reason, because transgender is seem, still seem like a subject of debate, it's okay to have that debate. Like, like I said, I, I brought back, you know, the the parallels, you know, with the the gay community in the 80s or, you know, the you know people of colour before that. And we all know that you can't say those things now. You can't say, like, you couldn't put in a newspaper, I don't think that um, black people should be allowed in the same bathroom as, as, as white people. <laughs> yeah. People would be held to account to that massively. Yeah. Yeah. Yet people can say that about transgender people. Like, we aren't an inherently dangerous group of people. No, we just want to use the loot. And so if we can start to hold people to account, that would make a huge difference because then people would start to see us for our authentic selves. But it's really challenging, very, very challenging yeah. thing to do. Yeah, well, actually, I've, I've, I've heard, heard that, you know, that conversation about loos or prisons or whatever it may be from, um, from some surprising people in my life. And I'm always like, well, if someone does does a criminal activity then they're it doesn't matter what how they're presenting they're yeah you know you don't sort of damn everybody with we have plenty of laws <laughs> that say that you're not allowed to yeah. rape people in bathrooms exactly um, like, exactly we, we don't need another one that's targeted a community that should pose no specific risk to that exactly but it's weird it's like it i don't know it just sort of plays into a sort of it's like an easily stoked fear in people or something and in my own limited experience with those conversations Often at the root, the person speaking about it has at some point in their life been in a situation where they felt very unsafe from, you know, where the um, perpetrator is a straight man. And that's that's their fear. It's like it's going to come and find them in another way when they're vulnerable. And it's, it's you know... And I think it's important to say that, like, I do understand why, where people's views come from. Like, I, I understand their fears. I understand where they originate from. And it's not their fault, you know. Mm. They have consumed a media um, that has, you know, built on that whole premise for decades. And so I, I understand why people are fearful. I can understand why people think that transgender women in bathrooms may pose them at risk. What, again, if you want to give me a magic, magic bullet, is to aim at all those people and say, have a critical mind for a second. Think, where does that fear come from? Mm. What is it based on? Because... If you look at the institutions that we use to guide our social activity, things like the World Health Organization, the NHS, the legal framework, all of those things say that we pose no risk and that transgender people are real people, they're real conditions, they're, they're not, we're not psychologically ill, they are just who we are innately born as. Mm. And all we need is some support medically and socially to have the most fulfilling and happy lives. When you look at that, you go, actually, there's nothing wrong here. So again, I... I really understand and sympathise with the people in that middle group who just think a certain way because that's what they've been told all their lives. But if I could say anything, just think for a second, be critical and think, is everything I can consume in the media accurate and right? And if not, where could it be wrong? And then if you start to engage with some people who tell their authentic stories about who they are, yeah. then you go, oh, maybe they're just not as scared as I thought they were. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think everything you said is exactly right. I'm doing lots and lots of nodding over here. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, going back to you, and after you left the army, is that when you started working in in the, in the financial sector? Is that where you are now? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And how did you find that transition then, going from army into that? I was very lucky. I worked for a team that was led by an ex-military officer as well. Ah. So um, there was a bit of a smooth transition, <laughs> but it was, you know, it's been, it has been different. I had to get a different routine. You know, the army really builds in things like, you know, fitness into your day. Whereas, you know, when you're... Oh, yeah, you know, of course, you're not doing this, yeah, nearly as much physical stuff when you're... Yeah, so, you know, all of a sudden you've got to fit more into your kind of your your downtime outside mm. of your work life. But With all that free time you now have with your, with your <laughs> yeah. nearly two-year-old daughter. <laughs> well, well, really, I've just joined the gym again for the first time in two years. Oh, really? Since Millie was born. Um, between <laughs> Millie and the pandemic, um, it just felt weird to go to the gym and... Um, Basically, you know, did the good old, you know, New Year's resolution thing mm. in, at the start of this year and thought, enough's enough. I need to start to get some personal routine away from Millie back to... And I've, it's amazing how much better I feel for going, nope, I'm going to drop you off at nursery in the morning and then I'm going to go to the gym, I'm going to do my 5K run and then I come back and I eat a healthy breakfast before I start the day. And just that one little routine change of just fitting that gym in the morning has made me feel much more kind of centred and relaxed around everything I do, both work and with Millie. So yeah. I think it's been really helpful, actually. Yeah, it's really good for up here, isn't it, having totally, that space, definitely. Totally. And so is that the, the job that you were in when you became a mum? Is that same same work environment? Yeah, yeah. And did you always intend on going back to work after you had your baby? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we were kind of financially in that position. Um, you know, Jake's a filmmaker, an incredible filmmaker who makes amazing amazing films um as well as doing speaking and all those, all other sorts of things but his income is sporadic so you know project comes along great income you know put it in the bank amazing but then you know he'll be in downtime as he's developing his net project and then mm. there won't be income over those months and so i was the one that had the kind of more steady day-to-day -day job with us you know with a salary and so mm. i kind of it was something that you know with our lives i just needed to go back to work so i took the maximum amount of maternity leave that i could um, that was full paid and as soon as that happened the mortgage needed paying and so I went back to work and we had to find that balance between paying for childcare and you know also making sure that when Millie's not in nursery that Jake isn't doing so much childcare that his career is stopping so it's been a real balancing act which shifts because you know to begin with you know newborns are fairly easy they sleep a lot big naps so you can get a lot done and then all of a sudden you get to the point thinking why isn't she sleeping at night oh, crap, you know, her nap is too long. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, oh, yeah. another hour of your day's gone. And you're like, ah. Oh. And so it's kind yeah. of a constant, like, tweaking of kind of parameters that Jake and I do to make sure that, you know, we have the steady income. He can put all the energy he needs into, into his career, but we can also, you know, look after Millie and be present as much as possible. So it's a, it's a fine balancing act that's always changing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a that thing when the nap goes, oh, oh you feel that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, those days are gone just about for me now. And actually now it's got that point where if he does have a nap during the day, my youngest, then it's like, no, he won't go to sleep on time. And, oh, yeah, it's just that ever just sort of shifting sands, basically. And am I right in thinking you're thinking about going for another as well? This might be. We'd like to, yeah. Yeah, um, maybe. Both Jake and I are one of two, and we think the sibling... I think the idea of having a sibling is lovely. I don't like the idea of really not having a sibling, if I'm honest. I think it's just both, you know, as a young kid, but also when you're an adult, I think it's so nice to have that kind of family connection of your own kind of generation. 
Um, and Millie's got lots of cousins, but I don't think it's quite the same. So, oh, um, nice though, having cousins. Lovely. You know, yeah. we've got some cousins that are really close as well. Mm. Um, so she constantly says their names over and over every morning. Mm. You know, like, you know, just it's just like the roll call of all yeah, of her yeah. friends from nursery, all of her, like, you know, mummy, daddy, you know, all her friends from nursery, all her cousins, you know, grandparents. Yeah, yes, yes, there's all the people you love. I know me, that's lovely. Um, <laughs> but no, we would like to have another one. But it's complicated, so it's and not. And this would be potentially with the same surrogate. Yes, it would woman. be, yeah. Uh, Laura. Laura. Okay. Yeah, she's, I mean, wow, she's an incredible woman. Um, I am constantly in awe of her. And, you know, quite often when I look at Millie, I think of Laura and just think, you know, what an amazing gift to give. And, you know, it, it takes a special kind of woman to to be a surrogate, I think. Yeah, um, amazing. But she just took it all in a stride. You know, she, you know, her, for her, her family was complete. And, you know, I th- I'm pretty sure she'd be fine with me saying, telling you this, but she had a personal reason wanted she wanted to be a surrogate for a family member who was struggling when she's younger younger then her family member managed to get um uh, pregnant by herself but that kind of lodged a seed in her brain of what a wonderful thing it would do to be able to help someone who wanted to have a kid to have a kid and then you know we were very lucky to connect um you know in the world of surrogacy intended parents looking for someone to help you and we went and met her and she was just wonderful and she said i'll do it and you know then we had Millie and, you know, we you know we still talk to her now. You know, we have, you know, regular... She's in Northern Ireland, so we have sort of regular Zoom calls to to catch up. Mm. Um, we we intended to spend a bit more time with her since Millie's born, but then obviously pandemic yeah. and everything changed, so it's a bit more um, via the, the video now. But, yeah, we talk to her and her kids on a regular basis and she has offered to go again for us. So when the stars align, I think when we're ready, you know, financially, personally, then that'll be something that we look to do. Yeah, I was thinking, because, I mean, obviously there's... If everybody's, you know, experience with using a surrogate must be quite a personal thing. But I kind of imagine that if it was something I was going through, then I'd have the same thing of kind of wanting them to be part of, you know, that my baby's life afterwards. So it would feel quite a natural. Yeah, I think. I mean, to continue that. It is, as you say, it's very personal. So yeah. some people actually on both. You know, it's you know, finding a surrogate's like dating. You know, there's so much that you've got to match on, you know, in terms yeah. of what your expectations are for the future, how you want the process to go, things you like, things you don't like. These are all things that you've got to kind of match on and pair on. So there are some people who really want that separation on both sides of the party. Do you mean when you say there's so many things you've got to pair on, do you mean like a sort of almost emotional things or or, or more practical? It, it's a bit of everything. So for, so, for example, like we wanted to, we knew that we wanted you know, our surrogate to be in our life going forward because I don't think, I, I can't fathom a world where someone gives you that amazing gift and then you just, you know, say cheerio and never speak to them again. So we knew we wanted them to Un- be in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> um, so that wasn't for us. But then logically, if someone's going to be in your life, in the rest of your life, in your child's life, yeah. you need to like them. You need to get yeah. on with them. You need to be able to have chats with them. You need to be able to spend time with them. So you've mm. got to be able to have that kind of personal relationship mm. and then there's some more the practical things because obviously and these are things that when people I think who don't go through surrogacy or maybe have slightly easier pregnancies don't think about are all the things that you have to consider all things that can go wrong mm. and or all the things that may not go against or may be against your expectations and there are times where you have to have some very difficult conversations about what would we do in this situation? Yeah. And you and the surrogate have got to align because it's your child but her body. Yeah. And you've got to respect them both. So, you know, you've got to make it's sure so that huge, your expectations it? are in line with what she's prepared to do with her body. Yeah. I and mean, luckily for us with Millie, none of that happened and we had a very positive journey. But, you know, you need to kind of 
really match up on those things. And um, so it's very, you know, it's a very, it's a very scary thing to embark on. And, and we feel incredibly lucky that we found Laura. And was there quite a lot of support out there for, for parents starting the journey as surrogate, like using a surrogate? Is that quite... I mean, there's a there's a real strong community and there's a very strong surrogate community where, there's, where lots of surrogates all talk to each other. Um, intended parents, it's less so. And there are, it's a real difficult thing to find your way into because you've got some traditional kind of agencies, which are kind of businesses set up to support you through that process. Mm. And they do lots of things for you. They do lots of checks and lots of pre-screening and help you with that matching process. But you pay a lot of money for that service. Um, or you can go to kind of the other end of the scale where there's like Facebook groups. And, you know, you know uh, uh, surrogates started one many years ago and now surrogates and intended parents go on there and you start chatting online, again, a bit like online oh. dating and you connect with someone there. Yeah. But it's, again, it's there, there's very limited support. So once you've matched, there are so many kind of legal things you need to go through, paperwork and mm. all that kind of stuff, which you then have to do by yourself, which again is cheaper. But again, yeah. it's... You know, a lot of surrogacy is expensive anyway, and then when you start piling on like legal expenses and agency expenses, it, it, sometimes it prices people out of the market, and so yeah. people who really want to engage with surrogacy they're not able to. And then you've got the more um, much the same with IVF as well, actually. Yeah, the absolutely. People are sort of ruled by their budget, unfortunately, with yeah. how many goes they can yeah. give themselves. And then you've got the abroad one. So they're you know they're, their legal framework for surrogacy is a lot stronger in places like America, for example. Mm. So um, some people go out there, but then again, the expense is, is much greater. Yeah. And there are some people who go to places like uh, Ukraine, which has a thriving um, surrogacy uh, setup, which is it's an interesting setup because there are some questions of the ethics of it there. Mm. Um, and you know, surrogacy is a is a very fine line ethically. When it's done right, I think it's a beautiful thing between two very consenting and understanding, you know, groups of people who come to do something amazing together and both leave very, very happily. But under the wrong circumstances with the wrong people, then I think it can cross over that ethical line very quickly. Yeah. And so, um, but then that is the, but it's a much cheaper option. So people are faced with some very difficult moral dilemmas. And as you said, some people have a very strong drive to have a child through surrogacy who don't have the finances to do it a certain way. So it's a, it's a very complicated world. But wow. when it's done right, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, but there are some times when it goes wrong, unfortunately. Yeah, it makes you think that, you know, you know, you're doing it now when there's been all this history to it and legal frameworks and working out where they need to But think about people that were doing it, you know, yeah. way back and all the stuff they were kind of, they were you know, being sort of guinea pigs for things going wrong and how to make sure that legally they're a bit more protected next time around it is fascinating I was thinking as well because we were talking before we started recording about the documentary you made about that whole process of becoming parents but it must have been quite unique for you that through that documentary you could actually see because obviously when you get handed your baby all you and Jake are doing are looking at your baby but because of the documentary you could see more Laura's you know what how she was responding and that's something you wouldn't normally have yeah. seen in that way it was yeah it was interesting and it was we actually watched the documentary a couple of weeks ago because you know we we're lying in bed and it was a nice thing to look at and i'm so glad we've got that to, to show yeah. Millie in the future um but it the thing about obviously about any documentary is that it's edited and so you know and it's scored and it's like really it, it's designed to pull you in certain ways and we think the documentary is beautiful and almost perfect apart from one reaction shot at the end where 
at the very end, we're holding Millie, you know, uh, you know, against her skin-to-skin contact, having this beautiful moment. And at this point, Laura has, you know, she had a C-section. She was back in recovery at this point. But they, the editor tra- chose to put in another shot of Laura looking at us, you know, looking kind of sad and crying. Um, which was actually just as she handed this baby over to us. Yeah. And it makes it look like, you know, she's feeling sad. And, and I think the, the docu- documentary makers wanted it yeah. to make it look like, oh, there was some doubt in her mind about giving up this child. That's interesting. Which is, you know what? Which, is, which, is never, which is never crossed her mind. I didn't actually think she did look sad. I thought she looked well, really peaceful. <laughs> Honestly, I thought she looked really calm. That's interesting. But that's, I suppose, that's... And of course, yeah, Telly, like, you know, yeah, they've yeah. Got, got their own, like, scope to it. But honestly, I, I um, as a, you know, impartial viewer, I didn't actually think oh, that. Oh, good, I'm glad that you didn't <laughs> yeah. see that. Maybe it's just me, you're a very critical eye. <laughs> yeah. Did she look that sad there? She didn't look sad there. Yeah, we're, we're, just, we're just so <laughs> conscious of... Yeah, you know, I suppose, yeah. Because we, we're doing something in the public eye, and we know that. We are open, opening ourselves up for people to give us their opinions, and we just want to make sure that people know that, you know, we really respect Laura, and this was a, a journey that we went on together, and mm. we, We've all come out of it as very happy parties, and I yeah. don't. I hate the idea of anyone suggesting that we've even somehow taken advantage of Laura when Laura's means a lot to us. Um, I don't think and, that even yeah. that, that, that really, from my point of view, anyway. That's not definitely. I think it's very clear that that's not the case. Actually, I think from my point of view, it was. I only got the beauty of it. Actually, I really did. That's good. No, oh, I think it's so powerful. I think it's so powerful. The idea of that, and you know, the the thing is, there's no nothing more pure than a wanted love baby being being with the people that love them you know it's just like it's completely gorgeous well, yeah well that's it i mean people people said to me that um you know how are you gonna what are you gonna tell millie when she's older and i was like i'm gonna tell her the truth like we went through hell and high water huge amounts of money huge amounts of stress and anxiety to bring her into the world because yeah. we wanted her that much you know that's that's the story of surrogacy for me. People who are desperate to be parents, going above and beyond, prioritising that process above many other things, including, you know, buying houses and all that kind of stuff that other people are doing. Like, we put all our energy into having Millie. And for me, that's just a sign of how much we want her, how much we love her and how how important she is to us. And that's what I'll tell her. Yeah, she's going to know that. I think... Um... I think the future's bright. And uh, there's also another bit in the documentary that did make me laugh. Um, when you were going to meet Laura for the first time and Jake said, I don't think we should drink at the lunch because we <laughs> want to look, you know, like parent people. And you were like, how many parents do you know that don't drink? <laughs> <laughs> it made me laugh out of that bit. I thought it was brilliant. But no, I just think um, it's lovely to speak to you because you, it's, it's always lovely to speak when there's a happy ending at the beginning of the tale. And, you know, I'm not I'm not saying that in a sort of um, trite way just from looking at Instagram you know I, I can hear it in your voice and in the stories you tell so I think that's it's it's an amazing thing you're doing with keeping your conversations open because I as you said at the beginning I know there will be many transparents out there but my word for if there, there'll be there'll be people you know in their teens and 20s just just starting to you know really emerge and for them knowing that all of those things are out there that's that's a really big deal. Like, you, if you could go back in time and tell that to yourself at like seventeen, eighteen. Yeah, of course. And it's one thing. If, if one thing that people take away from Jake and I being sort of public about our journey, I love for not just the you know those people who are potentially going through that journey of transition, but also the family and the friends. Just know that being trans doesn't mean you can't have all the things that you expected from 
you know, life. Because, you know, parents want to have grandkids. They want, they, and when people come out as trans, they think, oh, that's it, they're going to be alone or they can't have kids. It's rubbish, you know. I want people to know that just because you're transgender doesn't mean that you can't have life, you can't have love, you can't have happiness, you can't have a family, you can't have everything you otherwise dreamed of. I think we can just turn the table slightly and stop thinking about it as such a negative thing and just thinking it's just a thing that happens. Just like people have challenges all the time, it just happens to be ours and we'll overcome it and be happy the same as everyone else. So that was my chat with Hannah. How brilliant is she? And so much of that conversation has stayed with me. And my quote, every week with the podcast guests, I put a little quote up, an audio clip of a sort of special quote from our chat. And the one that Hannah said this week, I think is one of my favourites out of all my guests, because it can pertain to so many things. It was the bit where she said... You know, if your child comes to you with something, you have to think, do I want to be the reason that they couldn't be who they wanted to be or do I want to be the person who's in their corner loving them and supporting them? (laughs) Mickey, I'm in your corner and I support you, but I'm also trying to record something. Where are you? He's run away. He called me and ran away. Hello, what are you doing? Oh, Ant-Man. Can I come play? Mandalorian. I don't know where he is. Should we find him in the box? Big fans of Mandalorian in this house. In fact, in my mind, because Mickey was born around the time the Mandalorian series started and my older boys used to watch it and Mickey would often be on the sofa watching it with his dad and his big brothers. In my head, he's, he kind of is Baby Yoda. Mickey, are you Baby Yoda? He's shaking his head. I thought you were Baby Yoda. Do you have, do you have the force, Mickey? Oh, he's using the force. Things are lifting. He's shaking his hands. It's all happening. Mickey, I knew it. You are baby Yoda. No, I'm not. Oh, okay, fair enough. Anyway, uh, let's find him. Um, (laughs) There we are. I want to be in that corner. That's all I have to say on that subject. And I love that message that Hannah sent out. Yes? I get to be Dorothy? Oh, hi there, Toto. I think you can tell, guys, that my uh, attention is elsewhere. I've got to go and wear all the tin man. <laughs> You're being too animated. Oh, wow. Okay, sorry. If you've got, like, bud earphones in, I'm sorry if that hurt your ears. I'm going to go away now. I will see you next week. I have had not much sleep. Yesterday I was up for 23 hours. I had a gig this morning at... I'm. Let's find the scarecrow. Who cares about me and my gig last night in Butlins, Bognor Regis, performing at 1am, going to bed at half past four. See that? I'm off to see the wizard. See you next week. Bless the love. Take care of yourselves.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.